You're listening to the Tablecast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Tablecast. This is your host, Preston Cox, and I'm so glad that you have decided to join me today. So, uh, it's just me again today. Uh, I know you're probably asking, where's our good friend Paul at? Uh, And I can tell you that Paul will be back. Uh, Paul's working hard on some personal projects here at the end of the year, but uh, he has told me that he wants to be back with us uh, at the beginning of 2018. Like I said last week, we're going to be back with some more questions about discipleship. Uh, We're going to be digging into some deeper questions um, and looking at a whole bunch of different things about how we can become better followers of Jesus. Um, And so I'm just really excited to have Paul uh, on the podcast with me when he can. And uh, so, uh, Paul, we look forward to having you back, man. And also, uh, I wanted to give you a quick update from last week. So uh, if you haven't had a chance to listen to the podcast last week, I shared uh, a little sermon that I had done a while back um, about Revelation chapter 12. And and I just want to tell you, uh, those of you who are listening and have listened to that podcast, I actually saw an inflatable Christmas dragon this past weekend. (laughs) Uh, So here's what I need you to do. I need someone out there uh, to recreate Revelation chapter 12 uh, as a Christmas scene on their front yard with inflatables. I think that would be absolutely amazing. <laughs> uh, but make, it, make sure you, it looks like the dragon is losing, right? Uh, that's, that's the point of that whole story. So anywho, anywho, uh, today I want to bring you another Christmas message. Uh, and uh, it's one that I'm really excited about. Uh, I've done this material uh, like uh, I did before uh, with Revelation 12. I, I've presented this before, but this is a new and fresh take on some of that. Um, and, and it's a, a series that we were doing uh, at the, my church that we, we were at about uh, the names of God. Uh, and I had the opportunity to talk about my favorite name of God, and that's Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Now, for me, this name evokes all sorts of feelings and emotions, Feelings that this time of year evokes in a lot of people, like joy and peace and comfort and love. But I also know that this time of year for many of you, like me, uh, brings with it sadness and emptiness, uh, some burden, maybe hate or anger. And in that case, God with us has a message for you today, because in reality, that is exactly how the first Christmas felt. But I I don't want to get too far ahead. We'll get to that in just a little bit. So uh, in his introduction to the Christmas story, the gospel writer named Matthew echoes the words of this prophet named Isaiah. And you've probably heard this before. It goes something like this. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, God with us. Now, As a contemporary reader of this text, we have often pointed to this quotation of Isaiah simply as an affirmation of the fulfillment of prophecy. You you don't get what I'm saying? We point to this passage saying that this is how we can prove that Jesus is the Messiah because his birth was foretold about 730 years before it actually happened. And it's true that this passage does exactly that. And as contemporary readers, we are able to use Jesus as a lens by which we read the whole of Scripture, and rightly so. I think that's what Matthew is doing in this passage. Uh, 
In doing so, ancient stories from the Jewish scriptures take on new and vibrant meanings because we know how the story ends, don't we? But today, as we think about Christmas in 2017, I want to flip the lens around because I think there is a message that we're missing in this proclamation made by Matthew that I think can be better understood when we look at it through the lens of Isaiah first. There's something deeper here in this passage that we can't miss because really it's what Christmas is all about. So if you have access to a Bible, I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 7. It's a little over halfway through your paper Bible if you're using one of those. (laughs) I want to start with this prophecy as we try to dig a little deeper into the meaning of this name, Emmanuel. So first, let me give you a little bit of background about what's happening here. Because the strange prophetic language and imagery can get a little bit confusing at times. So bear with me because we have to do just a little bit of history to get there. In this particular section of Isaiah's prophecy, the kingdom of Israel has been split into two kingdoms. There's Israel in the north, and then there's Judah in the south. Here in chapter 7, Isaiah has been called to deliver a message to the king uh, of the uh, southern kingdom, Judah, by the name of Ahaz. Now, King Ahaz was living in this state of fear and paranoia because the northern kings, guys named, uh, I think, Pekah and Rezin, uh, we're going to go with that, they were threatening to invade the south in their efforts to take on these original big bads of the ancient world, the kingdom of Assyria. For Ahaz, though, it seemed like the threat of an attack was imminent. Like on the terrorism threat meter, this situation would be like full-blown red. And so enter the prophet Isaiah along with his son that has a really funny name, Sha'ir Jashub. And it has a really important meaning. This name means a remnant will return. And Isaiah's message to Ahaz is really simple. In chapter 7, verse 4, he says this, Be careful. Keep calm. Don't be afraid. Don't lose heart over these two smoldering stubs of firewood. (laughs) And this is referring to those two northern kings. Can you feel the prophetic burn there? I think everybody in the court went, oh, you know, it's one of those those things. (laughs) Uh, And then the Lord says in 7-7, It will not take place. It won't happen. Ask me for a sign and I'll prove it. But Ahaz, probably even more freaked out now with this interaction with the divine, says, I'm not going to ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And so the Lord answers back to him and he says, then I myself will give you a sign. And in chapter 7, verses 14 through 16, we get this very familiar passage that we often associate with Christmas. It says this, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. When we read this with only our New Testament lenses, I believe we miss two very, very important things. First of all, this fear that Ahaz 
has concerning this threat is very real and imminent. And uh, secondly, this son that is being spoken of in this passage, uh, who many scholars agree could actually be one of Isaiah's son, is an actual real person. This is not a proverbial person. It is an actual real little boy. And we know by context that this practice of using children as a sign was something that Isaiah was prone to do. We already know from the text that he's brought along this son uh, that has come to prophesy with him before Ahaz, the one with the funny name, the one that means a remnant will remain. And we also know about another son of Isaiah that we read about in chapter 8, verse 3, who has this name that means quick to plunder, swift to spoil. Isaiah gives us another clue. Uh, In verses 8 through 18, He says, here I am, and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty. So, all of this stands to reason that Emmanuel was actually another son of Isaiah to be given uh, as a sign for King Ahaz and to the nation of Israel about God's promise to them. However, the, the point here is not who does Emmanuel belong to. That's, that's not what we're trying to get at. Regardless of whose he is, it's obvious God was trying to tell his people something very important about his power and presence in the world. And to do that, he chose a little boy born in a miraculous way. <laughs> And little did these people know during the time of Isaiah that God would do the same type of thing again, except this time it would be God's son. For the nation of Israel, little Emmanuel stood as a sign that God will be with them even in the midst of their imminent destruction. The message to King Ahaz presented through this little child is for him to be patient and to trust the almighty power of God because he is the one who is ultimately in charge. Even in the depths of fear with threat of war, God promises to be with this nation. They will not be left alone or forgotten by him. And really, that has been God's promise all along. When you dig a little deeper into the scope of Scripture, you'll find that this promise of God with us is actually a crucial and central confession of God's presence among His people throughout the course of history. For instance, when famine threatened the land during the time of Isaac in Genesis 26, God tells Isaac to stay put, and then He says, I will be with you. And when Jacob was fleeing his brother Esau, God came to him in a really miraculous dream and said to him, I am with you, I will watch over you. And when Moses encountered Yahweh through the burning bush, God promises him that I will be with you before Pharaoh. And finally, when when Joshua took over leadership of the nation of Israel, God promised that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And the list goes on and on and on. And when you look at all of these instances of I will be with you in their literary contexts, you will undoubtedly see that they come hand in hand with times of trouble and hardship and fear. 
You see, this recurring statement of promise from God stands as a monumental reminder that comforts its hearers that when the world seems to be falling apart around you, God is right there. He's not forgotten you. Or in a word, Emmanuel. And I'm sure that you've experienced these moments in your life as well. Moments or events that it seemed like God was all but present in your life. And then as if if to shake you awake, God steps in, right? Like, Like that time when you had that bill that wasn't going to get paid because, well, life happens, right? But then your employer calls you into the office and gives you a raise for that exact amount of money. Or maybe that time when you and your spouse prayed and prayed for God to give you a child, but the doctors kept saying, look, it's not going to happen. So you go through treatments and you visit specialists and you pray and people in your church are praying that something will change, but nobody believes that it will. And then that day you went one last time to the doctor's office and you hear these words, you're pregnant. Or maybe the doctors gave you the prognosis that the cancer had advanced, and that they would no longer be able to treat you. But you go back in for one more checkup, and though it's medically unexplainable, the cancer was miraculously gone. And that is exactly how we describe those moments, by saying it was a miracle. And miracles play a big part in the Christmas season, don't they? There's something about Christmas that's almost magical, but not like in the Harry Potter or David Copperfield sort of way. (laughs) During this season, culture seems to be more in tune with those moments because it's like we're desperately searching for a glimmer of hope in humanity. We're looking for these little glimpses to remind us that God is with us. This time of year for the Christian world is often referred to as the season of Advent. Uh, And Advent is the season in which we await the arrival of Jesus. And it's funny because Advent comes after the conclusion of this time of year that's often called ordinary time. That is to say that in the Christian world, Advent is the beginning of something. It's something new, something miraculous. And while the rest of the world hopes for white Christmases or specific gifts under the tree, Christians wait in eager expectation of God to break into this world. And those little glimmers of God's presence in the world shine just a little bit brighter during this time of year because of that expectation. They're little Christmas miracles. And what are miracles? but moments and events in which we realize God's presence is already with us. Which brings us back around to the first Christmas story. You've seen the plays and in the movies and all those sorts of things. It, it was a mess, right? It's a story that begins with suffering and fear and attempted genocide. Uh, last week, I shared with you the crazy Tolkien-esque version <laughs> from this otherworldly ex- uh, ex- uh, experience that uh, was given in the book of Revelation. Uh, it was going to take a miracle to clean up this mess. Now, the years preceding the original Christmas story consist of a time that theologians like to call the Silent Age. We refer to it that way because it's been a long time since anyone had heard anything from God, like like 400 years long. And 
It's not like the people didn't need to hear from God during that time. They certainly did. There were, but there were no signs. There were no prophecies given since the prophet Malachi. And during this silent age, the nation, nation of Israel had experienced all sorts of political upheaval. It was unstable. It was oppressed. There was war and revolt and destruction. And in the midst of all of this, the book of Matthew opens with this young girl by the name of Mary who miraculously conceives a child through the work of the Holy Spirit. And and we can only imagine the fear and uncertainty that comes with something of that nature. And then an angel appears to her soon-to-be husband named Joseph. And he declares this to him in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. Don't be afraid. Which just so happens to be the same thing the prophet Isaiah told King Ahaz some 730 years before. And then Matthew gives us this little editorial note in uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, that says, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, you guessed it, Isaiah, the virgin will be with child and give birth to a son They will call him Emmanuel, which means, say it with me now, God with us. Now, because we have heard this and read it a thousand times, don't skip over what's being declared here. Matthew isn't simply just affirming a messianic prophecy. He's making a claim about who God is and what God is about to do. Because Matthew knows the context of this prophecy He is pointing us to the fact that the child named Emmanuel we find in the prophecy of Isaiah was an urgent sign to the king that God will be making his presence among them as he had in the past and as he will in the future. Just like the times of King Ahaz, God himself was about to give the world a sign, a sign that riffs from the one that he gave through Isaiah. A child miraculously conceived through the Holy Spirit, born to a virgin girl in a stable in the hill country of what once was the kingdom of Judah. It's like God is trying to tell us something here. (laughs) God ended the so-called silent age with proclaiming his presence through the cries of a newborn baby boy named Jesus. God was about to change the world forever and do something that had not been done since the beginning of time. God has always been with his people, but never so openly, never like this. And for Isaiah and here for Matthew, Emmanuel, God with us, is more than just a cute little saying that's eventually going to find its way onto stylish home decor from Hobby Lobby. No, Emmanuel was the fulfillment of a promise that God would forever be with his people no matter what. It was a proclamation that fear and doubt would no longer have a chokehold on the world and that there would now be a new kind of king on the throne. One who would make God's presence known in the world by speaking with authority, healing the sick, lounging with tax collectors, sinners and prostitutes, performing miraculous acts, and even raising the dead. His message throughout his ministry is that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's now. And God is making his presence known in this world. 
And the apostle John wrote about this, saying that Jesus was a light that shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And because of that, some in the world didn't like the presence of God being with them. So they ended up crucifying him on a cross and they left him for dead. But this is the good news, that the cross and the grave couldn't hold him because Jesus is God with us. And God had forever established his presence in the world. And I love this, just as Matthew began his gospel with the proclamation of Emmanuel, so he concludes it in Matthew 28. Go look at it. It's amazing. Jesus is about to ascend to the Father, and he's with his disciples, and he says this, And surely I am with you always. (laughs) So as we approach Christmas, remember this. The Christmas story stands as a reminder, a proclamation, and an affirmation that God is with us. He has always been with us. He is with us today. And we're going to yearn for that day when we'll be with him forever. And as we're going to continue to establish his presence on earth as it is in heaven. So wherever you find yourself today, whether you're caught up in the joy of the season or bound by the sadness that so often accompanies it, God is with you. God is with you. All people in 
Shall come to thee, oh. 